We are in 1 Kings, the 22nd chapter. And uh, finishing up, I believe this is the last chapter in 1 Kings. Uh, so kind of getting ready to wrap this up, reading some very interesting things. We are, uh, as, as we we're reading through Kings, it goes very fastly, you know, a paragraph on one king, a paragraph on another king, one after another, one after another. And then it gets to uh, uh, the time of... Um, Ahab, King Ahab, and particularly because of uh, the prophets Elijah and Elisha, which is going to be taking over as we get into 2 Kings, both amazing prophets. And uh, so, anyway, we are now um, in, in verse uh, chapter 22. What had just happened is uh, um, Elijah had spoken a prophecy over uh, Ahab because of his wickedness that uh, he was going to be going to die. But uh, he humbled himself before God, and God decided not to bring this on him, but would bring it on his sons after his death. We talked about that. I don't know if you guys at the campuses had a good conversation about that, but uh, it was kind of interesting here on why God would do that. Real interesting stuff. Anyway, so we pick it up. Final chapter, 22. Now, for three years, there was no war between Aram and Israel. You guys remember, this is a time, uh, uh, at this time, 4,000 whatever years ago, War was extremely common. These guys were constantly battling for each other. Uh, territory, land would go back and forth, exchange hands all the time. This is uh, a long time ago. Earth used to be incredibly, an incredibly violent place to, to live. What changed a lot of it, even though we've still had wars and there's been some horrible wars, uh, after uh, the arrival of, of Jesus, the Messiah, um, things seemed to... Uh, change certainly in modern history so it's not quite as insane as it used to be but it used to be just the regular everybody was constantly going to war with each other so it was a big deal that these guys went for three years between these two not having war but in the third year Jehoshaphat king of Judah went down to see the king of Israel so kind of a time of getting along between the two remember you have the split kingdom uh, which was really most of the history in Israel it was a very short period of time under King David and under his son Solomon, the, both the southern part of Israel and the northern part of Israel were joined together, kind of like our north and south uh, had problems. Uh, but after Solomon died, then it split again, and you've got Israel, which is the top ten uh, tribes, and then you've got Judah, a very large tribe, pretty much dominated the south and also included, uh, who was the other tribe? Benjamin, thank you very much. The itty-bitty Benjamin tribe. So uh, anyway, they get together, and uh, the king of Israel had said to his officials, don't you know that Ramoth Gilead belongs to us, and yet we are doing nothing to retake it from King Aram? So it's kind of bugging him. Last standoff, they've got uh, their property. We've got to do something about this. So he asked Jehoshaphat, uh, the king of Judah, uh, will you go with me to fight against Ramoth Gilead? Now, both Judah and Israel had its problems. Israel seemed to be in a much worse state in terms of their wickedness. Um, they were the first ones God brought real heavy judgment on, and, <clears throat> and then also eventually to uh, Judah. But uh, so he asked Jehoshaphat, will you go with me to fight against this guy? And Jehoshaphat replied to the king of Israel, I am as you are. My people are as your people. My horses are as your horses. In other words, we're brothers, we're, we're Jews. We're all on the same side, at least during this period of time. Short as it may be, they're kind of getting along. But Jehoshaphat said uh, to the king of Israel, well, first seek, seek the counsel of the Lord. Again, uh, Judah being a little bit more spiritually minded, 
uh, seem to do better, fare well, better in terms of uh, uh, in response to the Lord than Israel. Israel was so caught up in, in uh, um, idols and stuff. And again, Judah's marginally better. They still had their, their problems. But Jehoshaphat was a pretty good guy. So he says, well, first thing, before we do this, let's, let's, let's inquire of the Lord. Well, so the king of Israel brought together the prophets, about 400 men. Now, we don't know what kind of prophets these guys were. Uh, because we'll see in a minute here that Jehoshaphat notices that they're not really prophets of Jehovah. So I don't know if these were, I don't know what kind of prophets they were. I mean, a lot of stuff you've got to kind of read between the lines. We don't really know. Were they, you know, prophets of Baal or, the, of, or whatever? We don't know. But anyway, just they're prophets. And they got together. And uh, shall, shall we go to war against Ramoth Gilead or shall I refrain? Well, then they prophesied, go, for the Lord will give it into the king's hand. Well, the Lord, um, Zoom, they're talking about Jehovah God. Again, it's all kind of confusing. There's, there's part, portions of the uh, Old Testament here between uh, the, the prophets where it's, it's hard to understand what they were seeing or what they were saying. It's, it's all rather confusing. Uh, uh, who was that one prophet uh, that they were trying to pay to speak judgment against Israel and the, and the donkey had to talk to him? What was his name? What was the name? Balaam. Yes, Balaam the prophet. Talking donkey. That would freak me out. But anyway, uh, he was really a false prophet, but yet he heard from God. And he's, you know what I'm saying? I mean, sometimes it's kind of hard to really understand where the lines were. It's all kind of blurred back in those days. So I don't quite get it. But anyway, these prophets say, yes, God will be with you. The Lord's going to be with you and you're going to succeed. But Jehoshaphat said, now he's the one who noticed. He says, well, isn't there a prophet of the Lord that we can inquire of? In other words, that's, these are your prophets that are prophesying that the Lord will give us victory. But what about one of the prophets of the Lord? Again, he saw the distinction. I don't get it all. It's all kind of confusing to me. But clearly there was a distinction between these prophets and one that was really considered a prophet of the Lord like Elijah or one of these guys, okay? Well, the king of Israel answered Jehoshaphat, well, there's still one man whom we inquire, can, can inquire of the Lord, but I hate him <laughs> because he never prophesies anything good about me, but always bad. He's son, he is Micaiah, son of Imlah. Well, it's interesting. He didn't mention Elijah because Elijah's still around. Okay, Elijah had been prophesying against him repeatedly. Uh, but apparently, he, you know, forget Elijah. We don't even want to get him. But, but there's this one guy, but I hate him too. And he never says anything good about me. Well, the Jehoshaphat said, listen, you really shouldn't say that. If he's a prophet of the Lord, let's hear what he's got to say. So the king of Israel called one of his officials and said, well, bring Micaiah, son of Imlah, at once. Well, dressed in their royal robes, the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, were sitting on their thrones and threshing hope floor by the entrance of the gate of Samaria with all the prophets prophesying before them. Now, Zedekiah, son of Canaanah, had made iron horns and he declared, this is what the Lord says. With these you will gore the Aramanians until they are destroyed. And all the other prophets were prophesying the same thing. Attack Ramoth, Gilead, and be victorious for the Lord will give it into the king's hands. So these prophets are rather dramatic. They were, their kings were saying, they come forward and they prophesy. This guy brings these orange horns, these ram horns, and you will, you will gore the enemy. God's going to be with you. And these guys were very confident in their prophesying to the kings about the Lord's will. Again, kind of blurry. I don't quite get it. So, uh, so anyway, uh, the messenger, at verse 13, the messenger had gone to summon Micaiah, said uh, to him, look, as one man, the other's 
prophets are predicting success for the king. Let your word agree with theirs and speak favorably. So the, mes- the messenger who goes to get this prophet of the Lord says, look, everybody's, everybody that says it's going to go good. You really need to tell them everything's going to go good. Okay? But the prophet says, well, as surely as the Lord lives, I can only tell him what the Lord tells me. Uh, which is interesting because the first thing he says here is not what the Lord tells him. Apparently, he does it very sarcastically, so they knew it wasn't really the Lord, as we will see. So when he arrives, the kings ask them, Micaiah, shall we go to war against Ramoth Gilead, or shall I refrain? And then he answered, attack and be victorious, for the Lord will give it into the king's hands, which is what everybody had been saying. And he said he wouldn't say that unless God told him to say it. So one has to assume he's being sarcastic here because uh, the king rebukes him. So while it reads, attack and be victorious, for the Lord will give it into, your, into the king's hand, it had to be more sarcastic. What shall I do? Attack and be victorious. He's probably making fun of the prophets who had been standing there saying, do this. Oh, yeah, attack and be victorious, for he'll give it into the Lord's hands. All right, well, right away, the king knew he was full of baloney. And the king said to him, how many times must I make you swear to tell me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? So he knew he was lying to him. So apparently this had to be a real smart aleck prophet. Somebody, I love these prophets. They're in people's faces all the time. So then Micaiah says, okay. I saw all Israel scattered on the hills like sheep without a shepherd. And the Lord said, these people have no master. Let each one go home in peace. Well, the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, didn't I tell you that he never prophesied anything good about me? I hate this guy. (laughs) And then the prophet continues. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord. And then kind of an interesting look into eternal workings in the presence of God. Uh, He says, I saw the Lord sitting on his throne with all the hosts of heaven standing around him on his right and on his left. And the Lord said, Who will entice Ahab into attacking Ramoth Gilead and going to his death there? So God is basically bringing judgment now on Ahab at this point. Even though um, he had uh, turned his mercy on him, uh, you know, because of his repentance. I mean, these guys wouldn't stop. And again, we talked about this last week, how God is unbelievably merciful to these guys and reaching out to him. Well, at this point, God had finally had it. He's going to kill the guy. And he's sitting around heaven and says, okay, guys, we got to trick Ahab into going into this battle because this, what, this is what's going to kill him. And God basically says, uh, who's going to do this? How are we going to pull this off? Now, what's really fascinating, I, I think you heard my brother Eddie preach on this verse of scripture a few months ago when he was here. Interesting insight on how, how God operates because we often view God in terms of God just sits and just tells everybody what to do. Okay, that he's up in heaven, he goes, do this and do that. And it, we almost get the sense that in some people's mind, God is like this huge benevolent, benevolent dictator. And in a sense, that's true, but he's really not into just dictating at people and, and uh, just ramming his will down everybody's throat. He actually wants to uh, work with his creative beings. All right? Um, this is interesting. The reason why this is so important, and, and I'm taking some time with this, is 
oftentimes you hear from people of faith, evangelicals and stuff, and you listen to the way they talk about doing God's will, and to them, everything is just do what God tells you to do. Just do what God tells you. Yeah, you've heard this, right? Just, and you, do, you need to do what God tells you to do, but I mean, you get the impression that the walk of faith is really nothing about just hearing what God says and just do what he tells you to do. You don't use your own brain. You don't make decisions. In fact, people literally go out of their way not to make decisions. I don't want to make a decision until I hear God tell me what to do. Anybody heard this line of reasoning before, okay? This is fairly common even to this day. And I've always preached against this and said, look, that's not really the way it works. God has things that he's spoken that we need to do, but he doesn't always fill in all the details. And a lot of what we need to do, we need to step out in faith based on wisdom and knowledge that God says. Okay, for example, the Bible says that we need to be productive for the kingdom of God and someday we'll all give account for what we do. All right, but then you've got millions of Christians who sit on their butts, they don't do anything. And you say, well, why aren't you doing it? Well, I'm just waiting for God to tell me what to do. <laughs> well, what do you mean you're waiting for God? You see what I'm saying? They've got a twisted version of, of sovereignty that is really not biblical. And they're going to be in for one heck of a butt kicking on judgment day. I'm absolutely convinced of it. Jesus gave the parables over and over again about, you know, the, the, the king making his proclamation or the leader making his proclamation and then leaving and then coming back later to see how everybody was doing, right? Jesus gave parables along this line. This is an analogy of how God works. And the one about the, the talents. God gave one guy 10 talents, one guy five talents, whatever the numbers were, one guy one. And he took off. Well, the other guys, they got busy right away. But the one was afraid. I didn't want to make any mistakes, you see. I didn't want to miss God. I, I, wanted, I didn't want to get the master upset. I knew he was a, a stern man. So he, he, he sat on the talent, didn't do anything. And in and, and the parable, Jesus says that master rebuked that guy. Said, you wicked servant. You, you sat around and did nothing? Well, you know, I, I think of people like that who just, oh, I'm afraid. I, want, I don't want to miss God. I don't want to do anything. You know, I want to wait for God to tell me what to do. So they do nothing. They sit in this world of nonsense thinking that God will always just dictate every little thing that you do. And I've seen it in varying degrees throughout my 40 years serving the Lord. You know, people who just at a, a normal level are kind of frozen because they're waiting for divine revelation on everything to, to uh, major events in their lives to people who literally, and I don't know of anybody around that here, but I've seen this, Lathan, you've probably seen this, so people, they would pray, you know what, clothes to put on for the day. You know, and God, should I put it on this pair of underwear or that pair of underwear? Or, you know, should I, I am not exaggerating and getting in the car and letting God lead you, you know. Should you turn to the right at the corner? Or wait, 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 wait up. I think I'm hearing left. And they'll turn to the left. And I mean, and, and this was in many Pentecostal services was highly praised at one time of being deeply spiritual and being led of the Lord. And God just telling everybody what to do every five seconds. Um, again, very, very skewed a vision of, of the way God does things. This is interesting. Here God, do you really think God needs advice? Let's start there. Do you really think God needs advice? Does anybody think God needs advice? I, I don't think so. But here God sits down and he says, all right, what do you guys think? What should we do here? I got a pretty good idea that God had a clue about what to do. But if there's anything that you see about God's character, he loves to engage his children. He loves to engage his beings. The thing that's the greatest blessing 
And I think that brings the greatest glory of God. It's not when we're a bunch of zombies all waiting around for God to tell us what to do next. But then when we step out in faith based on God's principles and wisdom and leading of the Holy Spirit, that we make successful decisions that advance the kingdom of God. Very different views of life. It might sound small, but it's a big difference between people who just sit around waiting for God to tell them what to do and others who step out in faith based on God's principles. Let's do this, let's do this, let's do this. And then God, letting God just step in and direct them. For some reason, people think the greatest glory of God is when we just wait and tell God what to do. But stop and think how silly that is. What, what is more glory to me? My son was just up here playing guitar, helping to lead worship, okay? What is more glory to me that as a 30-some-year-old man that I still have to call him in the morning, Phil, get out of bed. Okay, Phil, Phil, get out now, okay? Phil, put on your underwear. Brush your teeth, okay? Now go... Now get up there tonight. Okay, sing a song. Okay, now play this chord. Okay, now, now play the next chord. Okay, everybody just wait. We're working this through this. And okay, Dad, just tell me what you do. Tell me what, okay, okay, da, da, da. okay, Phil, now you can put it down and walk off stage. Okay, thanks, Dad. Thanks, Dad. And he walks up. Does this bring me glory? What picture of that even begins to make sense in implying that to God? I just wait for God to tell me what to do. And God tell me what to step and how to breathe. And oh, I got to wait for the next thing. This doesn't bring me glory. What brings me glory is that the man gets out of bed himself. It pits on his own underwear. And gets up and prepares for the service. And I don't have to think about anything. And I just walk out and I happen to find the music on the organ. I just start jamming along. This, when he succeeds as an adult man, without having to check with me every five seconds, to this brings glory to the father, to this father. Are you hearing me? Now, based what? On the way I trained him. Yes, in the beginning there was. Get out of bed. Good Lord, how long have you had these underwear on? Good heavens, boy, think it through. Okay, in the beginning, yes. But this dysfunctional picture that true Christianity is about just sitting and waiting for God to tell you what to do is nuts, in my opinion. All right, this does not bring glory to God. I don't think, I, I, I just think it's a, it's a skewed, dysfunctional vision that we hear more of than any other thing. In fact, when I talk this way, it's kind of shocking to people. I mean, come on, people. This is not glory to God. God... What part of free will is exercised when God has to tell you everything to do? Like, I, I got free will, I won't, don't have to do it. But still, that's, that's, that's just not glorifying to God any more than any father would feel proud about having to instruct their kid on every step in life. We teach them, we instruct them, we build character on them, and then we watch them thir thir flourish and thrive. Today, I was at lunch with my son, and here he is giving me advice. You know, it was kind of cool. You know, this is kind of new for me. You know, he's finally stepping up, and, and he's sitting down and saying, you know, Dad, we ought to do this about this. And this is, I really think you ought to go this direction. I'm going, I'm going yeah, he's a man. Took a while, but he's a man. <laughs> it's good stuff. So God, even though God knows what's going on, he, he, he pulls in his creation. He says, what do you guys think we ought to do? As if God was confused. 
Well, one guy, one spirit or whatever suggested this, and another that. Finally, spirit came forward and said, stood before the Lord, I'll tell you what, I'll tell you I'll, I'll go and entice him. And the Lord says, and what, by, by what means? How are you going to pull this off? Again, as if God didn't know what he was going to say. Right? God knows everything. But he likes engaging his creation. He likes to hear from you, by the way. Which is a powerful... Do you know what prayer... you know why prayer is so powerful? Because prayer is you directing God's hand in the earth. Did you catch that? See, if you understand this extreme version of sovereignty, it will rob you of your motivation to pray. Some of you who struggle in prayer think, you know, why am I praying? Is it... Some of the reason not because you have wicked cold hearts is you, you don't understand. You've got this crazy vision of sovereignty so plastered in your head that God's just going to do whatever God's going to do, right? But see, that's a, that's a twisted ver, uh, version of sovereignty. When you start understanding that God is literally looking at you and say, oh, we're going we're to need to change the world. We need to change your neighborhood. We need to change your cousin and your family. And God's saying, what do you think we ought to do? And you're praying and say, Father, I... I pray you do this and God open this opportunity. And God actually listens to you. That's why some people have more of God in their lives than other people. You think God likes the one person more and you take him off? I like this guy, this person irritates me. You know, that, that's not what he's thinking. Is that some people are more engaged with God in prayer. When you start understanding, man, I can move the hand of God. I can guide. I have a part. I have a say. And what happens in eternity? Some of you are looking at me like I dropped in from Mars, see? No, I'm telling you, this is so important. Because if you don't get this, if if the eyes don't click on here for you, the eyes don't click on. If the lights don't click on, the eyes can click. I don't know. If the eyes don't open, you'll struggle with this stuff. You won't realize how important you are and how important your prayers are. Because God wants to change the world. Why doesn't God just show up and kick butt and take names and just do it? Seriously, if I was God, and you can be very grateful I am not. (laughs) If I was God, I'd just show and kick stuff over and just, you repent, you idiot, and you stop that and do that. And I'd just have fun knocking everybody upside the head. This would be my version of God, you know what I'm saying? Just having fun. But he doesn't do that. Why doesn't he can do anything he wants? He wants to change the world. Why didn't he change the world? Because he's sitting around his throne, he's looking at his people and saying, okay, guys, what, what do you think? But we've been so twisted with this picture of, well, God just tell everybody what to do. God's just going to tell everything. God's going to just direct everything sovereignly. Now, he does step forward at times. And you can read in the book of Acts, as they went out doing this and this, every once in a while, God will step and say, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. Go this direction instead. Okay, they go start, but then they start moving around again. They're not waiting every five seconds for God to tell them what to do. They were engaged. They realized who they were. Check it out. Look, look over at 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians, which is just before 2 Corinthians. <laughs> for those of you who are lost, page 1110 in my book. All right. Chapter 6, Okay. Chapter 6, verse 1. Paul's writing to the Christians because they're suing each other. They're taking each other to the court and suing each other. 
He says, if any of you has a dispute with another, dare he take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the saints? And I was like, what are you doing? What are you doing taking Pastor Lathan to court and suing him because his dog keeps pooping in your yard? What are you doing? You're going before a heathen judge because you can't get along with this person or that one. You're going to sue each other? We're Christians suing each other? And then he says this. Don't you know that the saints, talking about Christians, that's what a saint is, by the way. It's not some holy person up there. That the saints will judge the world? And if you are to judge the world, again, pointing to Christians, not some holy people, that's what a saint is. And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent enough to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels? Do you understand what he's saying here? When the angels of God who sinned and rebelled against God come before judgment, we get the picture that just God's going to do it all, right? God's up there and, you know, zoom, bam, boom, you're in, you're out, you're in, you're out. When it comes to judging the fallen angels, do you know who's going to decide their fate and who's going to judge them? You! And you! And you! I don't know about Lathan, but the rest of you! I mean, when you think about, I mean, that's, what? Us? Yes, you. Why? Because God loves to sit and look at his creation and say, what do you think? What do you think? In fact, Paul writes, he says, if we're going to judge the angel someday, if we are going to play such a role in eternity, you guys can't figure stuff out amongst yourself now? And it's a different thinking because we think, well, when we die, it'll be different. He's almost saying, look, because we know we're going to do that, we should be doing it now. We should be able to judge stuff now. Why? Because a few years, we're going to be judging angels. Well, I don't think I can. I don't think I can. What's the problem? Fascinating, fascinating stuff. So anyway, he, he says, again, I could preach an hour just on this alone. He said, but what means? Well, I'll go out and be a lying spirit in the mouths of all his prophets, said this prophet. And the Lord said, well, yeah, that'll work. Go and do it. So that's what was happening to these prophets. Again, what kind of prophets these were, I don't know. But this spirit, this angel from God came to these prophets and filled their heads with these prophecies and these ideas. They thought they were hearing from God. It's an angel who's messing with their heads and laughing his butt off. If angels have butts, I don't know. But, but he's laughing and he's making these, you know, ooh, this is going to happen. And they're hearing these voices and stuff. And they're afraid. But it's, it's, it's just a plan to mess them up so that Ahab will go into battle and be killed. So now the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouths of all these prophets of yours, Micaiah says. The Lord has decreed disaster for you. Then Zedekiah, son of Kanaha, Nana, whatever his name is, went up and slapped him in the face. Which way did the spirit from the Lord go when he went for me to speak to you? And Micah said, you'll find out on the day you go to hide in an upper room. Now, I don't know how this plays out, but this is not good for this boy. Someday he's going to find out what was going on. Then the king of Israel ordered, take him and send him back to Ammon with the ruler of the city and to Joash, the king's son, and say, this is what the king says, put this fellow in prison and give him nothing but bread and water till I return safely. And the prophet says this, if you ever return safely, then the Lord has not spoken through me. Mark my words, all you people. Which he knew what he was saying because 
he's saying he'll never return. If he returns, then this is a false prophet. And what do you do to false prophets? You kill them. Okay, so he said, mark my words, he'll never come back. And then they go off into battle. And you'll have to tune in next week to find out the rest of the story. <laughs> Hallelujah. All right, so we're going to break for our time of questions and stuff. Good stuff here. Have fun at your campuses. And we're going to talk about stuff here.